please subscribe and rate on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. You can follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram at GermaniaPod. Hello, welcome to Germania, Divided and United. Episode 1.30, The Scourge of God. I hope you all enjoyed the interview with Ian Hughes in the last episode, and that it gave you a better perspective on the importance of Geyseric to the fall of the Western Roman Empire and Mediterranean history. I would love to hear your feedback, either on Twitter at GermaniaPod or via email, gdupodcast at gmail.com. Let me know if you'd like to hear more interviews going forward. I have some ideas that I'm trying to organize, so let me know how you feel about the interview style for this podcast. As Mr. Hughes brought up during our discussion, Europe in the early to mid-5th century was defined by the westward expansion of the Huns. I have posted a map, courtesy of Wikipedia, on Instagram, at GermaniaPod, that shows the expanse of Hun territory circa 450 during the rule of Attila with their influence expanding to the Rhine and Danube rivers. The map also highlights the Roman territorial losses in the West, with the Franks, Burgundians, Subai, and Visigoths occupying lands in Gaul and Hispania, and the Vandals having fully separated their kingdom in North Africa. As the Huns expanded into the land the Romans had dubbed Germania, those tribes were forced to migrate to lands inside the Roman Empire or submit to Hun rule. The Huns emerged in Europe in the late 4th century, migrating from Central Asia and crossing the Volga River around 370. With their mastery of horsemanship and superior bows, they overwhelmed the tribes north of the Black Sea and continued their westward expansion for the next 80 years. Attila emerged as the co-leader of the Huns with his brother Bleda in 434, following the death of his uncle, Rua. We don't know much about his early life, but he was likely in his late 20s or early 30s at the time of his elevation to power. While his father had not been a ruler of the Huns, his uncles Akhtar and Rua had jointly ruled as he and his brother Bleda would. This type of diarchy was common with the Huns, though I don't think there is clarity as to why leadership fell to the children of a brother who had been part of the ruling pair rather than to Rua or Akhtar's children. Attila and Bleda clearly came from an important family, though it may not have been a true dynasty. The etymology of Attila's name has been a topic of study for several centuries at this point. It seems probable that the language of the Huns was a Turkic language, and the name Attila could be derived from Turkic words for horseman or warhorse, which makes sense given the famed horsemanship of the Huns. There is another theory that Attila derives from the Turkic words estil, meaning great sea, with its meaning as applied to a person, the universal ruler. A more interesting theory for our purposes comes from the 19th century and was originally proposed by the famous fairy tale authors Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm. This theory was that Attila comes from the Gepid or Gothic language, with Atta meaning father, making Attila mean little father. Attila did have Gepids and Goths within his confederation, and rulers throughout time and space have been referred to as the little father of all their people. The fact that Attila was a Hun does not necessarily mean that he would have been given a Turkic name. 
Or, as one of the early sources referring to Attila is Jordanus, he may have referred to Attila using the Gothic version of his Turkic name. There are no direct accounts of Attila's personality, appearance, or moral character. The best source is, once again, Jordanus, who cites a contemporary history from Priscus that we do not have access to. In this account of Attila, quote, he was a man born into the world to shake the nations, the scourge of all lands, who in some way terrified all mankind by the dreadful rumors noised abroad concerning him. He was haughty in his walk, rolling his eyes hither and thither, so that the power of his proud spirit appeared in the movement of his body. He was indeed a lover of war, yet restrained in action, mighty in counsel, gracious to supplicants, and lenient to those who were once received into his protection. Short of stature, with a broad chest and a large head, his eyes were small, his beard thin and sprinkled with gray, and he had a flat nose and swarthy skin, showing evidence of his origin." Unquote. In the early 430s, as Attila was rising to power in the Hun Empire, his friend Flavius Aetius was cementing his position as the center of power in the Western Roman Empire. The Huns were critical allies for Aetius during his rise, based on his experience as a hostage in his teenage years. Due to this strong relationship, in the 430s and 440s, the Huns primarily focused on pillaging territory under control of the Eastern Roman court crossing south of the Lower Danube. The eastern court was forced to pay tribute to the Huns, starting during the reign of Rua and Akhtar, and by the 440s under Attila and Bleda, the annual payments reached 2,100 pounds of gold. As they had expanded westward in the late 4th and early 5th centuries, Hun practices became more influenced by the culture of the societies they came into contact with. By the time of Attila, the court employed secretaries who were fluent in Latin so they could communicate with Ravenna and Constantinople. More and more Germanic peoples were incorporated into their broader confederation, especially the Alans and the Gepids. The theory that Attila's name is derived from the Gothic language was used as evidence by J.B. Burry to suggest that the German tribes must have risen in importance within the Hun confederation, but this is certainly not definitive. As a 19th century European, Burry was arguing that this proved the German culture was superior, but not so superior that they didn't get their asses kicked by the Huns. Much like the Romans, the Huns incorporated conquered people as auxiliaries in their army. We do know that one of Attila's most trusted advisors was a Gepid chief named Arderic. So there's some evidence that these conquered people were well integrated. It is interesting to consider who was happier with their decision in the late fourth century, those Goths who surrendered to the Huns or those who petitioned for asylum into the Roman empire. Given his good relationship with Aetius, Attila continued to focus his power primarily on the Eastern court. But in 448, something changed and Attila's attention was drawn directly to the Western court at Ravenna and the Western Roman Empire. There's a story that goes along with this new focus on the West. And while I personally doubt any of it is true, it is the only real explanation I've seen offered by the ancient histories. So I'll provide it for you here. Now, do you remember who the Western Roman emperor was in 448? Of course you don't, 
because he was a non-entity who was primarily led around by various advisors. From the 430s to the 450s, that role was filled by Aetius. But Valentinian III was technically the emperor, despite his shortcomings. As discussed in episode 1.28, Valentinian was the son of Constantius III and Gallic Placidia, and his mother had worked hard to secure her son's position following the death of Honorius, and she served as regent early in his reign. While Valentinian III is generally described as morally and intellectually weak, he had a sister, Justa Grata Honoria, who was a better heir to the legacy of Theodosius I. Strong-willed, ambitious, intelligent. While she was an important political figure as a young woman, the limits put upon her by patriarchal Roman society eventually got in the way of her big goals. Talented women in this period had to put their energy into the career of either their husband or their son. Unfortunately, as the sister of the emperor, and an especially weak emperor, Honoria was never going to be allowed to marry anyone with the potential to usurp the throne from her brother. So Honoria remained unwed throughout her 20s. By the early 440s, Valentinian and his wife had two daughters, and the future of the dynasty was going to be forged via marriage to those princesses. Honoria was thoroughly marginalized at this point. In 449, Honoria began an affair with her secretary and decided to use him to fulfill her ambitions. The two began plotting to overthrow her brother. However, before any action could be taken, the plot was revealed, the secretary was executed, and Honoria was exiled from the palace and betrothed to a rich senator whose most important quality was that he did not have the charisma necessary to be a threat to Valentinian. Honoria was furious, but she didn't really have many options. She needed to find herself a new ally who could rescue her from this unpleasant arrangement, someone who wouldn't be cowed by the authority of the emperor. And by this point, the most powerful leader in the Roman orbit was the leader of the Huns. Honoria sent a trusted servant to the court of Attila to ask for his assistance. As proof that the request was really from the sister of the emperor, Honoria enclosed a ring. After receiving this message of, help me Attila, you're my only hope, along with a ring, it was clear to Attila that Honoria wanted him to rescue her so the two of them could be wed. So in the spring of 450, Attila began making preparations to save his princess. Now, I don't believe there's any chance that this story is true. Roman writers were highly critical of ambitious women, as well as promiscuous women, and this story of Honoria trying to woo a barbarian king is too similar to her mother's experience as a hostage of the Goths and her marriage to Atolf. Furthermore, as Attila rode west, he headed towards Gaul, not Italia, so there was no clear intention to rescue his princess. I could believe that the relationship between Ravenna and the Huns began to fall apart over negotiations for some kind of marriage alliance between the Huns and Roman nobility. More importantly, the Hun society was structured at this point around capturing plunder and demanding tribute from the surrounding societies. Whatever relationship they had with Aetius and others in Ravenna, eventually the Huns were going to try and push farther west across the Rhine. By the late 440s, the Western court looked about as weak as they had in centuries, especially following the treaty with Geyseric surrendering North Africa. Leading up to Attila's invasion of the West, Geyseric had been in contact with the Hun court, 
sending gifts, and trying to secure an alliance. Many historians, very among them, have suggested that Geyseric was trying to manipulate the Huns into attacking the Visigoths, possibly due to concerns that Theodoric would eventually want revenge for the way Geyseric had treated his daughter. But Attila had plenty of his own reasons to make war in Western Europe. Attila sent a message to the senior Augustus, Theodosius II, in Constantinople, claiming Honoria as his wife and demanding half of the territory controlled by her brother as a dowry. Attila proposed that this half would include Gaul, allowing him to push the territory under his control all the way to the Atlantic Ocean, and certainly setting up an eventual push into Hispania. Theodosius wrote to Valentinian, recommending that he hand over his sister to Attila to prevent the carnage that would surely result if Attila invaded. Valentinian was furious at the suggestion that he surrender his sister and, more importantly, half of his remaining empire. As Attila began moving west, he sent messages to Ravenna, Toulouse, and other capitals in an effort to keep the people west of the Rhine divided. He wrote to Theodoric that his intention was to defeat the enemies of the Goths, while writing to Aetius that he was coming to fight Rome's enemies, as he had done before at the behest of his friend. In 451, the Huns finally crossed into Roman-controlled territory. Attila had with him a whole host of allied Germans, Gepids under their king Adaric, Ostrogoths led by three different chieftains, Alans, Herals, Thuringians, Rugians, the Ripurian Franks, Burgundians from east of the Rhine River. Aetius was slow in organizing a defense, but he eventually pulled together a coalition that included the Fodorati Salian Franks and Burgundians from near Savoy. But without the Visigoths, his army was not strong enough to face Attila, and initially Theodoric remained neutral. Theodoric was eventually convinced to join the anti-Hun alliance when Attila began to approach Orléans in May. I've added a map on Instagram, at Germaniapod, that shows the movements of Attila's army on the campaign. After destroying cities along the Rhine River, the Huns reached Metz on April 7th and continued to sack city after city. It is a testament to the fear Attila inspired in the people of Gaul that two different Catholic saints are venerated for leading cities in prayer during this campaign. The first is St. Anianus of Orléans. The ecclesiastic history holds that the city was under siege when God answered their prayers in the form of Aetius and Theodoric, arriving to drive off the Huns before it could fall. I tend to agree more with Burry, who points out that Orléans would have been a logical place for Aetius to fortify and draw his defensive line, and that as the Goths were coming to reinforce him, it made sense for Attila to make a strategic retreat before even attacking Orléans. Either way, the city was spared, and St. Anianus was certainly critical to maintaining calm as Attila was approaching. The second was St. Genevieve of Paris. When the citizens of the city received word that Attila was on his way, she convinced everyone that preparing physical defenses was pointless and instead led the people in prayer for many days. In the end, Attila never approached Paris, completely bypassing the city. Following Attila's retreat from Orléans, Aetius and his coalition pursued him and the two sides finally met near Mariacus, a small city close to the modern city of Troyes. 
The ensuing battle is known as the Battle of the Catalonian Plains and was fought in late June, lasting all day and into the night. Part of Attila's strategy was to hold back a large reserve until the early afternoon when the Romans and their allies would already be exhausted. Theodoric, king of the Visigoths for over 30 years, died in the fighting. The Alans, fighting under Attila, reportedly suffered a casualty rate of 70%. The fighting had to end at nightfall, and the next morning, Attila had drawn his army in a defensive position behind their wagons, preparing them to retreat. Aetius had successfully repelled the scourge of God. The Roman coalition fell apart almost immediately after this battle. The Visigoths had to settle the issue of succession now that Theodoric was dead. Some accounts hold that they initially wanted to pursue Attila to revenge their king, while others hold that they requested permission to leave immediately, which Aetius was happy to grant. Aetius also encouraged the Salian Franks to return to their homes. There are two hypotheses as to why Aetius would be so excited to dissolve his army while the Huns were still in Gaul. One is that with his allies gone, Aetius and the legions would be able to claim any of the plunder that the Huns were forced to abandon as they retreated. The other is that Aetius was not interested in pursuing punitive action against the Huns. They maintained the order beyond Rome's borders, and Attila had helped Aetius maintain if not order, then at least his position within Rome's borders. But Attila was not one to give up so easily. In 452, he again sent messages claiming Honoria as his bride, and this time he followed it up with an invasion of Italia. The Huns first approached Aquileia, a city that was no stranger to battles and sieges. But while it had seen many armies before, Attila's would be the last to attack the ancient city. The Huns captured the city, sacked it, and razed it to the ground, leaving a wasteland that was mostly uninhabited over the next century. According to legend, the refugees of Aquileia eventually resettled in a lagoon, building a city out of the water, creating the foundations for modern Venice. Attila continued to advance through the cities of northern Italy, either leveling them or extracting a huge payment to keep the cities safe. He began to advance down towards Rome, when a delegation led by Pope Leo arrived to ask the Huns to spare the city. Pope Leo was the first pope ever dubbed the Great, and his successful negotiation with Attila is an important reason why. There are several reasons why Attila may have been receptive to Leo's diplomacy. First, as many other cities had done, Leo may have delivered a massive quantity of gold though there is no record of an imperial tribute payment being made to Attila. The Huns also already had plenty of plunder from their campaigning in northern Italy. How much more could they have really carted off? There are also some reports that the Eastern Empire had sent an army west to help defend Rome and drive off the Huns. But most seriously, there are also reports of a camp plague ravaging the Huns by this point. Adding it all up, it just wasn't worth the effort to try and besiege Rome. Like Anianus and Genevieve the prior year, the fact that Attila did not destroy the city was evidence that God had answered Leo's prayers. Attila may have planned to make another attempt at invading the Western Empire, 
but it would not to be to claim Honoria as his bride. In early 453, Attila celebrated a marriage to a young wife, but in the celebration on the night of the wedding, he suffered a hemorrhage and died. His aides found him the next morning with his new bride sobbing beside him. After the death of Attila, the Hun Confederation began falling apart. Attila's sons divided up his domains, but the Germanic allies who had pledged fealty to Attila were not so willing to recognize his sons. Ardaric, king of the Gepids, led a confederation of Germanic people in rebellion, and they utterly defeated the Huns in battle in 454. By 460, the Huns were no longer a major power, and they had retreated back to the coast of the Black Sea. Soon, the Gepids would come to dominate the area around the old province of Dacia, the Ostrogoths would move into Pannonia, and other Germanic people would settle in areas from the Danube River down towards the Adriatic Sea, in the modern Balkan Peninsula. The collapse of the Hun Empire had two major impacts on Western Europe as the Roman Empire continued to collapse. First, as discussed, Attila's ultimate failure to conquer Gaul and Italia was used as propaganda by the Catholic Church for centuries, highlighting the power of God's grace and the devotion of his servants. Second, from a political perspective, after driving Germanic people across the Rhine and Danube rivers in the late 4th and early 5th century, the Hun Empire then slowed further encroachments from the period of roughly 420 to 460 in two ways. First, by forcing the remaining tribes to pledge fealty to them, and inhibiting their ability to flee into Rome. And second, the Huns consistently provided auxiliaries to Rome in their various battles against the Visigoths, Franks, and Burgundians, which slowed their ability to peel away more territory. Now that the Huns were gone, the Germanic peoples would be free to exert more pressure on Rome. Next time, we will turn our attention to the man who first truly leveraged the destabilization of Western Roman political structures into independent rule outside the auspices of the Roman imperial dignities. Like so many military leaders of the late empire, he was an ethnic German, and he did his best to restore the authority of the court at Ravenna, while simultaneously becoming the first German king of Italy, Flavius Ricimer. Thank you.